Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Are Here Tomorrow. Today, we're doing season two, episode 19. I am in my home studio. John is in his home studio. I am Zach, and that's yes, John. Yes, and I am John. <laughs> As mentioned. Okay, so what are we talking about today? We are going to be talking about the present and future of passenger trains. And specifically, we're going to be tracking the story of the high-speed passenger rail, its wildly different global perspectives, and whether or not high-speed rail can put a future face on an essential but archaic bit of infrastructure. John, what did you think about this topic going in? And mm-hmm. please quell the audience's fears that I'm not just going to take us on some convoluted tale of a mechanically inclined over-optimism. Ah, well, I mean, you are the mechanical <laughs> specialists, and there might be some some optimism placed interestingly, but we'll we'll dive into it for sure. Uh, you know, when you when you brought this topic to me, I was thinking, oh, dope, Zach's the resident expert here. So, you know, mm-hmm. Musk's crazy hyperloop must be coming soon. <laughs> and you were saying like, well, not exactly. It's it's less about the, the technology. There's definitely some tech stuff we'll talk about, but it's more about why the United States doesn't have much passenger travel train mm-hmm. and what happens if we start adding them? Because you kind of brought to point that that might be happening. Mm-hmm. So how I kind of viewed this episode over time was basically that we were doing a trains revisited episode, but you know, we never actually had a, a trains episode the first time <laughs> around. So that would have been in the 1800s or so. Yeah. Trains, trains aren't new. That would have been a good uh, podcast though. Would have been great. <laughs> I don't know how it would have been distributed. You would not have heard it, but anyways, trains, trains aren't new, but they're oddly getting more appealing and we'll, we'll dive into that. So if there are more train options in this world in, in the United States, you know, it's worth discussing the big impacts that they can have on our community. Right. So if you think you're in for a slow episode about some tired bit of technology, you're in for quite a surprise. We'll be talking Shinkansen bullet trains, international mega projects, magnetic levitation, and a lot more. So without further ado, John, all aboard. I hope that makes a cut. Yeah. Oh, it definitely will. So where does it, where did this topic come from? Hmm. Joe Biden, or as he's called in the railroad circles, Amtrak Joe. This is true. Has won the election, obviously. With all the talk of COVID and social justice hot button issues, sometimes I kind of forgot that there were other parts of the campaign platform, right? Hmm. Um, yes. And one of the parts of his platform that I thought was very underappreciated was his plan for a high-speed rail system in the U.S. Okay. In fact, I didn't even realize that there was a high-speed rail plan as part of his platform until I saw like a boomer versus millennial meme about it on Facebook. <laughs> um, and if learning about a presidential campaign platform through a sarcastic meme fed to me by some Facebook algorithm isn't the most 2020 thing you've ever heard, I don't know what is. I don't know. There needs to be a little more death in there. But yeah, go, go, go on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, anyways, that got me thinking. Trains aren't a new concept, obviously. So what's so groundbreaking about a high-speed rail plan? And is it really significant enough to be part of some serious campaign platform? And the more I looked into it, the more interesting the story became. As a commuter, travel time is king. Whatever the quickest way for me to get from point A to point B, that's the way I want to do it. For this reason, I think that's why we in the U.S. view rail travel as a thing of the past. I mean, we have planes. You can't compete with air travel, right? 
it turns out in places outside of the U.S., we're actually seeing just that. In fact, in many routes in Europe and China, high-speed rail is going to head-to-head with air travel and winning. (gasps) So, Zach, let's take a step back. Broad strokes, what is this high-speed rail situation around the world? Sure, sure. And just right up at the top, before we even talk about that, let's just define what high speed is, right? Sure. Um, when we were doing our research, we thought it was just comical how many different ranges there were for quote unquote high speed. Mm-hmm. So in general, I think they count anything between 150 and 200 miles per hour. I think that's what we're going to consider high speed today. Sounds good. Sounds good. And that's that's not the average speed from you know Boston to Washington, D.C. Instead, that's kind of the maximum mm-hmm. speed at a single point, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, depending on stops and different terrain, as well as traffic on the tracks, that speed can be wildly different. Um, so, for example, that's what we see in some places in the U.S. where the rail is more congested. And while we may have a high speed of 100 miles an hour, we're never seeing anything close to that. However, we also do have some high-speed technology right now that's going almost twice that. And I think that's a pretty big difference, obviously. Um, So as we look around the world, you're going to hear some wildly different speeds falling under this quote-unquote high speed. We'll be sure to address the massive differences. So let's take a look from a 30,000-foot view at the major global players in the high-speed game. Right on. First, let's take a look at Europe. In Europe, passenger rail travel is very much like the tried-and-true method. Because there's relatively short distances between their big cities, as well as a rail system that is often nationalized rather than privatized, their rail infrastructure has always been very passenger-facing. Or in another way, consider it voter-facing. So convincing more people uh, to ride the train and, you know, giving them that uh, perk, the train, basically, uh, can, can sway the vote. Right, exactly. Yep. Basically, in Europe, human passengers have been the cargo to focus on when it's deciding where to build a lot of the new railways. Therefore, European rail infrastructure is definitely more passenger friendly than most other places on this list. In keeping with that historic tradition of a strong passenger rail system, the EU is actually smack dab in the middle of a massive investment into high-speed rail called the Trans-European Transport Network, or TENT for short. Which definitely spells TENT if you put that in the right order, but I get how uh, different languages (laughs) spin that. Correct. I quote from their main website, the ultimate objective of TENT is to close gaps, remove bottlenecks and technical barriers, as well as strengthen social, economic, and territorial cohesion in the EU. Right? They're just trying to get that connectivity. They're trying to be able to get from here to there quicker and just make it make Europe feel smaller and more international, right? Yeah, yeah. What that means practically is a huge 65 billion US dollar project that aims to build high-speed rail lines through nine traffic-heavy quote-unquote corridors between major cities in the EU. You're going to hear corridors a lot. That's essentially a high-traffic route between one city and the other. Sounds good. Um, This project has been going on since the mid-2000s and slated to finish off by about 2030. These nine corridors, as well as dozens of local offshoots, will be almost exclusively passenger rail, operating at about 150 miles an hour. For some U.S. context, that's Chicago to New York in just about six hours. Okay, so now let's hop over to Asia, where we've got a lot more um, 
let's say high tech play in this game. Sure. Japan is probably the most mainstream famous when it comes to talking about high speed rail. They were extremely early to this 200 mile an hour game running the first Shinkansen bullet train in 1964. So that being said, Japan is kind of the best case scenario for high speed rail. Not only is public transit very culturally accepted, but even the geography is just dead on perfect for this mode of transportation. Right. It's basically the corridor. Japan is so thin, so long. It is one of the corridors that Europe talks about, but it is just the entire continent. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, as it stands today, Japan is improving their high speed rail network. But because they invested heavily so heavily early on and because sustainability is one of the major advantages of a rail infrastructure, it seems like they're pretty happy with just riding the sweet returns of that. Yeah. Moving over to mainland Asia, China is basically the young buck when compared to the Japanese high-speed rail system. Facing completely different geographical and population density challenges, China didn't start their high-speed endeavors until almost 40 years after Japan did. But if there's one thing we know about China, it's that once they commit to that idea, they've committed wholeheartedly. Almost like only one heart at the very top of the government uh, needs to commit before everyone else decides to follow suit. You know, the the Chinese government way. John, how dare you? How (laughs) dare you? Uh, Anyways, since 2006, China has invested about $100 into laying about 25 thousand kilometers of almost exclusively passenger high-speed rail for reference in the u.s the government has spent about a quarter to a fifth of that amount in the same time range but also in china the dollar goes quite a bit further right and i in the u.s i think we've only laid like a couple hundred if if that even yeah it's it's more maintenance uh is where we put our money at this point yeah Since China had no previous infrastructure to build on top of, they enjoyed a more clean slate approach when it comes to new rail tech as when compared to Europe. Um, In fact, China has kind of been one of high speed rail's greatest 21st century success stories. High speed rail has replaced once busy domestic flights, especially ones between three and four hundred miles long. To date, China's high-speed rail system now transports twice the passengers as all domestic air travel. That's pretty crazy. I don't know the U.S. number, but it is is not that fraction uh, nearly. Right. I believe in the U.S. about eight in every 10 flights is a domestic flight. So just imagine taking those numbers and and not cutting them in half, but moving half that population over to a completely different mode of transportation. Yeah, that's that's nuts. So why is the U.S. this way? Why is there this discrepancy where the U.S. seemingly has no passenger rail lines relative to Japan and China and and Europe, as we'll get to? And I break this down into actually like two questions. Mm -hmm. The U.S. had trains. So the first question is, why did the U.S. abandon these people trains while the other countries outside the United States didn't? And the second question is why the U.S. hasn't pushed for readoption of these passenger trains in mass. So we're going to first focus on the United States abandoning its trains. And there's multiple theories surrounding, you know, all the factors that potentially push uh, us to abandon the trains, like the rise of cars, undermining Mm -hmm. by big car company, et cetera, uh, trains lacking profitability, the Great Depression and a bunch of others. 
And my favorite explanation actually ties almost all of those together into one package. And I'm going to walk you through that. So early 1900s, city to city train, which is, you know, more of the train we're talking about in this episode, not the intercity or intracity train. Um, This is when train was king, the 1900s, early 1900s. And that's because the alternative was basically taking a horse bus which is an actual term, which is <laughs> horse and carriage, but you just have a long carriage at the end where it's bus-like. Amazing. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. I've seen the Link horse bus in our notes for the last two weeks, <laughs> and I've been just so curious as to what that was. I assumed it was like some boring piece of policy, but I'm so much happier that it is a l- real thing. No, it was it was the alternative to the train, and we will put horse bus links in the show notes because okay. they're hilarious and simple and, and awesome. So fast forward just a a few years to like the mid 1910s, most train lines weren't terribly profitable anymore. Cars began spreading during this timeline Mm -hmm. and many families with the advent of a car, they're like, Oh my gosh, I can be one of those rich people that somehow has their own horse bus or whatever system they use to get out to the countryside. And they have their rural estate. Rural estates weren't a thing. People didn't like live out in the suburbs or rural areas because they were basically farmers or they lived in the city. There wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, this, the suburb thing. So everyone, the, the population changed in what they wanted. Right. And this is one of the crucial downfalls of the train system. So come the 1920s, train companies don't have enough city to rural services to meet the demand. The demand is higher because everyone's like, oh my gosh, I want to get in on this, you know, uh, suburban boom basically. Mm-hmm. So because there wasn't enough services, Families slowly decided, hey, there isn't a train that's going from the city to where I want my rural estate to be. So those families started to peel off and they, you know, one by one got cars. And then most train trips became slightly less profitable because fewer people were using those those trains. And mm-hmm. instead of adding, instead of the tra- big train companies adding more frequent and widespread train rides, services to those other parts of the, you know, sw- somewhat suburban area the rail lines cut the the unprofitable services. So they had even fewer okay. train lines to provide service and hope to eventually make money. Right. So so it's already going down in the 1920s in the US. It's always it's already going down. Exactly. Kind of cars are is rising here. So the car ownership, you know, seems more necessary as fewer trains exist because only the profitable ones exist. And that creates a spiral where there's more unprofitable lines and there's more train cuts and there's more cars. So it basically spirals down to not having many services. And instead of the 1930s, train ridership is, you know, in, in a free fall of decline and it's starting to spread to like city to city, like you know, we were kind of talking city to suburban. Well, when people already have cars because they want to drive city to suburban, then they say, oh, I'm just going to drive city to city in my car. I don't really need to take this train. Right. So the Great Depression sweeps in and bankrupts many of these passenger train companies. But trains moving goods, moving cargo, moving freight, as they call it, is still profitable in this timeline. So right. big freight companies, they scoop up the railroad tracks, they buy them, and they, you know, owned by private companies moving freight, not people in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the second question. Why hasn't the U.S. pushed for passenger train readoption in mass? You know, why don't we have trains these days? We lost them, but you could, you could bring them back, right? Right. And a lot of that comes back to a, a bunch of different factors as we'll go through. But continuing with that, that freight train uh, line is U.S. freight 
rail companies are still more profitable than passenger. Oh yeah, for sure. Railroad tracks haven't, you know, come up for sale for exclusive passenger use or something. Instead, the freight companies have have grown on the rails. The rails move a lot of mm. a freight across the US. Oh yeah. And another really useful note that I did not realize at all is that freight and passenger trains, they don't share the tracks very well in the United States. Mm -hmm. In Europe, freight trains are regulated to be similar in size to passenger trains, so they can move similarly and more easily avoid collisions. So like an analogy would be, picture yourself, Zach, driving yep. your passenger car, your Tesla 3, amongst some you know freight semi-trucks. I wish. <laughs> yes, yes. Someday. It'd be doing it by itself, then I wouldn't be doing it. Right. <laughs> but you're driving this, this passenger car with some, some semi-trucks on a single lane road. Because, yes. fortunately, uh, you have similar-ish speed intentions between your Tesla and those trucks, sometimes not, mm -hmm. but similar enough, uh, you're not slowed down too much, or they're not slowed down too much if they wanted to go faster. There's similar expectations, as mm -hmm. well as there's similar stopping abilities. If there was a, a crash and everyone on the single-lane road needed to slam on the brakes, they could yep. reasonably avoid pileups. Gotcha. In the U.S., the analogy is different because the strategy for the United States is to push freight costs l as low as possible by having right. one much, much larger trains. So think twice as tall, more weight per axle, as well as uh, a lot longer trains. In Europe, they're regulated to be less than 750 meters, but in the United States, they can be 2,000 meters commonly mm -hmm. or even as, as many as 6,000 meters. So basically 10 times longer than yeah, that's crazy. the European trains, which, which is wild. They also sometimes go slower because they're moving goods. The goods maybe need to get from Chicago to LA in three days. They don't need to be there in 18 hours or, or tw 24 hours, right. what you might want as a passenger. So slower is right. fine. So the analogy, yeah, the, but the bananas don't complain when they're, when they're moving a little bit slower on the freight train. That's they, right. We can't hear them. They might complain, but we don't know about it. <laughs> yeah. They are screaming. They're yes. screaming. So the analogy gets messed up here. If, if you are rev rev back in your Tesla three, even though it doesn't mm -hmm. rev rev, uh, with <laughs> semi trucks, these semi trucks in the United States would be 10 containers long or even longer. So you have these mm -hmm. snake like semis that will probably drive slowly to not guzzle gas. And if they need to stop, they need, you know, 10 to a hundred times more distance. So the pileup risk yep. is really high. So bringing that to trains in the U S they definitely do still share the tracks, the passenger and the freight trains, but it's not, it's not great. In, uh, in Europe, they actually have an opposite issue since the distances are so short it's l much less expensive to ship by truck versus freight. But because the EU is emphasizing lessening pollution, mm -hmm. they have actually committed to moving 30% of all their rail freight, non-high speed, or all their rail to freight, non-high speed freight, by 2030. So in the US, for example, about 30% of our freight is carried by rail versus by car. Um, in Europe, it's about 11%. So we move a lot more goods on our tracks when compared to Europe, they actually move a lot more goods on the road, but conversely, they move a lot more people on their rails when in the U S obviously we're moving a lot more people on the road, right? We're basically trading people for goods. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In short, I think the, 
that nationalization of the EU rail system a lot of times means they don't have to experience as much of that free market pressure as like rails or freight rails do in the US where like we got to lower the cost because we got to get these goods from point A to point B as as least expensive as possible. Right, right. Yeah. So another challenge in the US is population density. Um, As we mentioned when we were comparing the unique challenges of the Japanese versus Chinese high-speed rails, how populations are oriented and just located makes a huge difference in a mode of transportation that's really only good in straight lines. So like, John, you mentioned above, the shape of Japan versus the shape of China, right? Sure. Japan is essentially a thousand mile long island that's built perfectly for a Shinkansen corridor. Mm-hmm. Many, most other regions in the world don't have that luxury. Europe is not in line, quote unquote, as much as Japan is, but the distance between its population centers, it's relatively low within that like three, 400 mile range. This spread of population density is a massive challenge in countries like China, as well as in the U.S., where the population centers are more randomly spread out um, and the distance is also much greater. Right. It's like Japan is one dimensional and very concentrated in its population, sure. where yep. the United States and, and China, to some degree, is is two dimensional. You know, you got to go east, west and you gotta go north, south. Exactly. And often, uh, you know, way more spread out the, the people. So the demand might not be as high per kilometer of track. Mm-hmm. Right. Another thing, just besides pure distance and population density that we look at is considerations outside of like fiscal. So like climate, for example, climate change, that's a huge deal when we're talking about methods of transportation, right? Right. And this is actually where, you know, there's a feather in the cap of readoption. Trains have lower climate warming and more energy efficiency than cars and planes. Oh yeah. So, so for starters, obviously climate change warrants action now there, what can we do about it? And (laughs) since we ask, yep. Yes. And transportation contributes about 16% of all greenhouse gases split between cars, trucks, planes, boats, trains, but forecasting forward battery and hydrogen cell tech should reduce Mm -hmm. road and train operating greenhouse gases to about zero, depending on how these energy is made. Right. Yeah, exactly. As long as like solar, for example, as long as we can get it renewably and sustainably, then like we can transfer that electricity to something, no greenhouse gases. Yes, exactly. But planes aren't so lucky. They, they can't quite yep. go to zero. So today, road transport contributes about six times more greenhouse gases than planes and mm-hmm. road about 50 times more greenhouse gases than trains. But... Whew. In 2070, which is really far out and, you know, uh, projections are are tricky, but at the current technology pace, the greatest transport contributor to greenhouse gases is probably planes. And like, Mm -hmm. why planes? Planes have to, like like cars and and trucks, but planes have to carry their heavy fuel with them, but planes have to bring it into the air and, you know, float it way up high. So they need a lot of energy per pound to get off the ground and stay off the ground. Thus, mm-hmm. we have jet fuel. We have the you know very concentrated piece of of gasoline or of of oil. And yep. what are we to do then? Well, battery and hydrogen cell planes might be possible in the future. Research is ongoing, but it's unlikely soon. Adoption would probably take a while too. So right. the answer is probably to transition travelers away from planes to greener technology. 
Option one is, of course, electric roads, the cars, buses, trucks. But this is limited if you say don't want to drive or don't want to find parking for your car or you don't want to own a car. Or, mm-hmm. or maybe you want to have maximum energy savings or faster commute times, safer journeys, old school nostalgia, like a bunch of other things like that aren't quite the right thing for cars, buses and trucks, which leaves us with the second and final option, trains. Yes. Or, or maybe boats, but we might cut that out. <laughs> trains are already mostly electric and transitioning to fully electric. Trains are yep. also already great for crowded corridors, like we've been talking about, very dense areas where mm-hmm. you can only have so many lanes of highways and, and cut down so many forests, et cetera, as well as pretty good for those 100 to 600 mile journeys. Right. The question becomes, can train services, not just the train tech, we'll get to that, but can the services themselves evolve to convince more short and medium distance plane travelers to ride the rails? Exactly. So when we look at like the energy considerations and how much energy we're actually using in these in these different modes of transport, um, all thing all else being equal, high speed rail is still going to be more efficient than a car by about four times, and about nine times as efficient as air travel. And and maybe it's it's funny to talk about energy efficiency. Obviously, it's mm-hmm. important. And in the future, once we have just green everything, you're like, oh, well, there's no greenhouse gases. What happens if it uses four or nine times more energy? And that's kind of the next frontier after we get our greenhouse gases under wraps is mm-hmm. just keeping the energy use low because we will still have a finite amount and want to use it for other things. Exactly. Yep. So bringing this all together, all these different points of energy consideration and climate change and why people want to have cars, et cetera, things are actually maybe closer than people expect. All in all, if if you're thinking about a less than 600 mile journey, the comparison is not too bad between options. It, it surprised me. So thinking about Minneapolis to Chicago, for example, some people drive or fly or even have friends that take the train. I was surprised to find that cost is pretty similar amongst those options. Door to door time, pretty similar. The train is similar greenness to four people in my Prius. Yep. But of course, both of those options are way better than than planes. And it's actually pretty nice to have zero thoughts or cost considerations for parking in Chicago. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ultimately, how I think we need to think about this is under the term a priority stack. So for example, if one person drives alone from Minneapolis to Chicago, it doesn't mean they don't value the comfort of trains or the energy efficiency or the nostalgia. They instead, they, they value those things, but they prioritize other values more, controlling their exact destinations and departing whenever they want as examples. Right. Each person, you and I, Zach, you, whoever's listening to this, you have your own travel priorities, what you value on a certain trip. And society mm-hmm. together in aggregation, all of those priorities combine into this group level priority. And that's what's used to warrant new investments, you know, if we should go the train route or not, what do we collectively want? Right. So you and I, Zach, we can't claim the U S people are definitely better off with many more high speed rail networks, but understanding those priorities for each of us, that's a really worthy exercise so that we don't just proceed in the transport future blind. We actually know what we want out of it. Right. And if you think that you're not going to be able to have a say or hand in this transport future, I think that's a mistake because I think that a lot of these large scale decisions 
hinge on the fact that they need to be accepted by the local communities. Right. Absolutely. So that kind of brings us to today. We've looked at where historically some of these big players have been, as well as the different like social dynamics that affect why the U.S. is maybe this outlier in developed countries with a terrible infrastructure or a terrible rail infrastructure, at least. Sure, sure. Um, but so let's look like from most to least friendly. Let's look at some of these countries. Yeah. And see, so, see what you ride. Yeah. So Japan, we put at the top. Obviously, the Mm -hmm. setting is super useful. 125 million people on an island the size of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois. So it's dense. It's congested. In 1960s, as you said, they put in their bullet train. They have other trains, too. It's just the bullet train is the one that can reach speeds as fast as 200 miles an hour. At peak time, I want to say a bullet train leaves Tokyo every three minutes. These trips are frequent, very frequent. Yes. We'll we'll talk about, keep those three minutes in mind. Uh, It's (laughs) obviously not three minutes for all day, but peak times, that's pretty awesome. It's also quite affordable and it feels like the future. Like I, I one time was on the tracks in Japan trying to take a video of the, the Shinkansen approaching and I was surprised when it appeared behind me uh, the other way. It just <laughs> snuck up on me. I didn't even hear it. Uh, and it's this beautiful, white, gleaming thing. Obviously, that's just aesthetics, and that's not super important. There's cool-looking cars and mm-hmm. planes, too. But feels like the future. So Europe is next on our list. Like we mentioned, Europe is a very passenger-based rail economy. In addition to the nine corridors, the tent project that we talked above that was slated to finish by 2030... By 2050, Tent also intends on creating a comprehensive network of electric rail to cover a significant part of the European Union with the goal of decreasing personal air and car travel. So think about like your nine main corridors going through the continent of Europe. And then at each of those stops, you have these tendrils going out. Okay. Right. Yep. Like that's those are kind of like the more local projects. They they won't necessarily be high speed because they're not moving as far, um, but By 2050, that is also part of this tent objective as well. Mm -hmm. Now, Europe's historical infrastructure becomes a catch-22 at this point. See, most of their rail was laid down in the 20th century. No matter how good the train is, the older rail limits the speeds of the trains on top of it. So the high-speed trains are maybe going to hit 200 miles an hour, absolutely max. Okay. But even with a train that could go over that speed. So for example, some of the trains that we're going to see in China that can regularly travel over that 200 miles an hour, putting them on a European track, they just would not be able to do it safely. Right. They just crash. Yeah. Just, yeah, that's it. Um, because of this, many places in Europe are lowering their initial high speed investment to only updating parts of their rail system or using these high speed trains on like what I would consider low speed tracks. Right. Sure, sure. It's yeah. almost like Europe is the opposite of China, where it's not the mm-hmm. blank slate. They're really invested in it, and this is why it's kind of like second on our list behind Japan. But they uh, they're still stuck with a lot of old tech. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that was the exact same same note that I came away with too. It is kind of like two sides of the same coin. Right. Prior to the '90s, China had almost no rail infrastructure. Completely opposite of Europe. Additionally, they also had relatively large distances between each of their population hubs. China's a big place. They've got a lot of people, but they're very centralized in some places. Right. A lot Um, on the East Coast. Yes. Because of this, they had a massive upfront investment to make into laying down track. 
But this also means that they were able to build their rails using the best in computation and engineering, optimizing with high-speed rail in mind. Therefore, unlike Europe, high-speed in China really is high-speed at like 200 to 220 miles an hour. Right. However, like in Europe, high-speed rail is also nationalized. So they don't experience the same market pressure that happens in the U.S. Sometimes that's good. I think sometimes that's definitely bad, though, right? We do experience a lot of innovation from the capitalist market. Mm -hmm. This low profit pressure coupled with cutting edge infrastructure means that, as one Bloomberg writer puts it, the future of train technology resides in China. And if you want to learn more, we've got a cool link that we'll put. uh, It's a great YouTube video just explaining how great China is at this and how they use their trains in kind of interesting ways that we'll talk a little bit more about too, actually, as we, we go further on. For sure. So that concludes China. That brings us to fourth out of four places, the United States. Uh, there's other mm. countries too, obviously, that are we, we excluded, but these are kind of the four biggest players in the space. And in the US, you basically have two options for trains. You have for first, Amtrak. So yes. p- picture this. Amtrak is this, uh, I think it's technically a for-profit company, but the main investor is the United States government. Yes. So if you want to think about what Amtrak offers, think of think of the United States map. On the West Coast, you have one train line from Seattle, Seattle to San Diego, and then there's four train lines breaking off from that, moving east to Mississippi, Chicago area, Mississippi River, Chicago mm-hmm. area. Then there's five trains that go still east to the East Coast, and then there's a nice cluster of trains up and down the East Coast. That's that's still good. Mm-hmm. But this completely skips several states like South Dakota, Wyoming, Tennessee, Kentucky. I don't think they have more than... 50 miles of track, you know, cutting through a corner, if at all. Wow. This is also skipping through a ton of major cities. And the routes, if you were to try and go from one major city to another, is very indirect often. Mm-hmm. And the frequency is is good in some areas of Amtrak and really bad in others. So good is this northeast corridor. So from Washington, D.C. to Boston, cutting through New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Connecticut. This is a pretty straight line. And Mm -hmm. they offer this about 20 times per day in both directions. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. The rest of the lines, other than those, (laughs) the rest of them across the rest of the United States are basically three times per week. Wow. That's that's hard to it's hard to plan a vacation around that. If you want to you know, land in a city and take the train somewhere somewhat impromptu, you probably can't. You probably can't at all. SpaceX is launching rockets more frequently than that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's actually maybe true. And as you mentioned, Zach, is this high speed? And not really. Only one train in the Northeast Corridor is reaching 160 ish miles per hour this year. The rest are pretty slow. And and is that like we mentioned above, is that operationally at all or is that like they can hit that at peak? They can hit that peak just just in the areas where they're old infrastructure, old tunnels and and tracks, et cetera, won't Mm -hmm. break. Very straight, very (laughs) flat, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that was the first option, Amtrak. The second option is Brightline. This is a private company with one train, Mm -hmm. literally one train. It's from Miami up the coast to West Palm Beach through Fort Lauderdale. It's about an hour ride. It's not even that long. So this, they run this. It's one train, but it's one fun train. It is one fun fun train. (laughs) They run this uh, about 16 times per day in both directions, which is really good. That's probably what yeah. you need if you want to be able to depend on it, use it for commuting uh, through Milwaukee if there was one. And Absolutely. it opened pretty recently. It opened January 2018. This is the first private train service. So 
Amtrak is con- considered like public, public private. It's the first Brightline is the first private train service in 30 years. And it's also the first new private train line in over a hundred years in the United States. Wow. Yeah. So we are behind. We're behind. We have train tracks, but we use them for freight or we just don't send passengers on them very frequently. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to double down on that, we can throw some statistics at the wall. Looking just at the amount of passengers we see, uh, like the Chinese rail systems measure their passengers in hundreds of millions annually. And in the U.S., Amtrak had about 31 million riders in 2016. So, uh, you know, we're looking at magnitudes and magnitudes of difference. All right, John, we've covered today. Now let's turn and look at the future. This is the part of the podcast where John and I would be talking about cutting edge stuff, specifically innovations that we think could be impacting you, the audience, firsthand within the next 20 years. Right. But with mega projects on the scale of these cross-country high-speed rail systems, we find that 20 years is just not that long. The tent program was kicked off in Europe in the early 90s, with the original deadline being 2050. This date could easily creep out to 2060 if you know anything about deadlines in large construction projects. So again, our 20-year outlook suddenly seems to be minuscule. Right. We're going to talk about two pieces of cutting-edge train tech today, the maglev and Elon Musk's infamous Hyperloop. Mm -hmm. We're aware that it's extremely unlikely that we will see either of these as anything more than experimental in the next 20 to 30 years, but we still wanted to highlight these to let everyone know that there's loads of new work being done in this technical space. Let's look at the first one, which is maglev, which is paradoxically a little more on the ground floor than Hyperloop is. What do you mean by that? uh, Meaning like we've got some examples, we've got bids actually happening around the world to put in functional maglev tracks. Right on. Maglev was a super popular science technology back when it hit the mainstream scene in the early 2000s. Yeah, man. A levitating train makes a pretty kick-ass magazine cover, I must admit. And I bet you they made no less than a dozen magazine covers. Surely. <laughs> um, basically, what Maglev does is it uses magnetic repulsion and attraction to levitate and pull the train forward. What it kind of makes me think of in a weird way, and this is going to... Forgive me if this is going too 90s and nostalgic for you, but John, did you ever in gym class in third grade have to ride on little boards that had wheels in the corners? You would like sit yes, on them and yes. push around? Uh, yes. Only third grade? This is like all of elementary school. <laughs> yes, all of elementary school, yes. Um, but we would always put one kid on there and would, then we'd line up on either side and we'd do this thing where you'd just, the kid on the board would reach out with his hands and you'd grab his hands and you'd throw him down the line. Right. (laughs) Basically like every time he gets to a new person, he's moving faster and faster and faster and faster. Um, but that is kind of what maglev is doing in a weird way. You're, you have this essentially dumb train and you have the magnets or the people in front of them pulling them forward faster and faster all the way down the line. They have no propulsion on the board, right? Their legs are up, their hands are in, if their fingers were not in, they'd been chopped off long ago. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just think that's like one of those weird things that makes me think of, you know, 
maglev technology weird, inspired weird by. Weird is right. You do some weird yes. things in uh, <laughs> Wisconsin elementary schools. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the maglev train doesn't look much different than any other high-speed train, but there are a couple key differences that make it a significant improvement over the conventional high-speed rail. The, the biggest and most obvious improvement, as we're kind of alluding to, even in the name, is that there's no mechanical contacts. There's no wheels on the track. This thing levitates literally above the track. While it sounds really small just to get rid of the, the wheels, consider this. The maglev speed record on an operational line that moves between Beijing and Shanghai is about 360 miles per hour. About 50% faster than the fastest conventional rail system, right? That, Operationally. That's a pretty good jump. Pretty big. Right. Right. So, yeah, we're looking at New York to Chicago in two or three hours. Sure. At max speed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, besides removing of that one mechanical contact, there's a couple other huge advantages. Like I alluded to up top, the driving isn't done in any way by the train. The train is essentially a box and a dumb magnet that's being pulled along the tracks. This has a couple implications. Number one, from a safety perspective, having all the trains controlled by one central system versus an individual train controlled by an independent conductor is a huge bit of risk mitigation. Right. And to be fair, the Japanese bullet train, you know, Japan's got their stuff together. They already do mm -hmm. this, but Absolutely. it's something that is inherent in a maglev system. Right. Exactly. And a, one of the things about the maglev as well is that without power, the train goes nowhere. That is, I know one of the big things with rail in general is that you take the power away from a locomotive, whether it's electrical, diesel, what have you, that train continues until friction stops it, hmm. right? Um, and you essentially have this moving column of steel that can be really destructive in the wrong situation. It's almost like the wheels are a bad thing when you don't have power yeah. and you're trying to stop. The wheels just keep rolling. Yeah. In the case of Maglev, right. it just screeches to a halt, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I mean, better or worse, it does essentially just stop. There's no pull forward. Right, right. So it just, it just stops, yeah. Um, what this also means is the train doesn't have to carry the weight of the engine. All the locomotion is done by the track. That sounds huge, right? Like you mentioned above with, with planes, right. a big issue with trains is you got to carry the fuel up in the air, right? Mm -hmm. You got to carry the fuel and you got to carry the engines just to burn the fuel and power the, the plane. Mm -hmm. um, the engines have to lift themselves as well as the rest of the plane. So this is a little bit of caveat when it comes to maglev. While the train doesn't have to carry engine weight at all, it does have to carry a super cooling system for the magnets. So super, you can look into this. We could do a whole podcast on this, but super cooled magnets are the most effective way to levitate or do anything in the electromagnetic spectrum. Ah, I thought um, it was ma magic. It's not magic. Okay. It's, it's not magic. It's super no. cooled magnets. Good to know. Yep. Yeah. Your science teacher told you wrong. It's not magic. Um, the, the trick is that a super cooled magnet um, produces about 10 times its typical magnetic force. Again, we're not going to get into why that is. Okay. But good. Yeah, it does happen. <laughs> So the issue, obviously, is that we got to carry around this very heavy, super cooled system. Mm -hmm. um, there's just no way about it. Same way, there's no way around carrying the weight of the engine in a train. Despite what some may claim, the maglev isn't is also not more energy efficient than conventional rail systems. Um, 
it's about even at the same speeds put side by side. Hmm. But the obvious benefit is that it can also double that speed, which the conventional rails cannot do. I gotcha. It, it almost reminds me of a, a plane where it takes mm-hmm. incredible amount of energy to lift off and get to cruising altitude. But once you're in cruising altitude, you basically coast in the air. You use a little bit of uh, gasoline or what jet fuel. So mm-hmm. that's actually why shorter flights with minimal peak altitude coasting, like Milwaukee to Chicago or even Minneapolis to Chicago, are extremely mm-hmm. inefficient. Right. I believe on liftoff with a plane, you're actually burning like something like 12% of the overall fuel just in like, just in takeoff and like up to cruising altitude. I wouldn't be surprised if it was like three yeah. times that. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think what you were circling around, one of the interesting points or tidbits about maglev is that actually at 300 miles or 360 miles an hour, the train actually essentially acts like a lifting body, like an airplane wing. It, because you have air moving underneath, it essentially builds up on this cushion of air. Um, and the magnets that were once used to levitate are only like only a fraction of that power is even needed when you're, when you're up to speed. So that's kind of a cool thought that like, if we can, from a control standpoint, if we can get up to speed, maybe we don't need to use as much power. Right. Right. So said, said another way, you're flying through the air, you're shooting across the air and some air is going to go below you and kind of push you up. Some air is going to push you down, but there's going to be enough pushing you up that you start to, to float and, and coast as, as planes mm-hmm. get to do in yeah. the top of their yeah, flight. And it's not a full plane. It's not going to take off, but we are taking, you know, a, a 50% of the weight of the train, let's say I got you in that lift. Yep. Okay. The thing that I would say that kind of kills maglev dead in the water is the, is the cost basically Mm. per mile a maglev rail costs about three times as much as a conventional high-speed rail so those maglev tracks can only obviously be used by a maglev instead of being able to run both high-speed and low-speed trains like you can on a conventional rail right right and taking that concept itself where it's you know a really expensive track really specialized and really fast and not much drag basically to the extreme is how you get to elon musk's hyperloop so Mm -hmm. if you're not familiar elon musk proposed this super train technology and elon was too busy he had you know more things going on so he basically wrote a giant paper explaining what his idea is and he challenged anybody and everybody to make it happen if they wanted to see that in their future what does mm-hmm. it look like? It's basically maglev in an ultra long tube track. So it's tubed, it's it's covered, and all of the air, or almost all of it, is vacuumed out of the tube. Mm-hmm. That way there isn't as much resistance. You know, if you're yep, running drag. on a windy day, yep. it, it, you actually slow down. And therefore, Elon thinks that these, these trains could probably go 700 miles per hour using kind of similar maglev propulsion, as I understand it, with some other fan technology that's cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. But the convenience is supposed to be really good, much like trains these days and, you know, better than a train. And the price could be also as good as trains these days. Hard to say. These things don't exist. And that's right. that's why we're, we're basically leaving Hyperloop out of this podcast. There's so mm-hmm. many unknowns, so many engineering challenges, so many things that we haven't even thought to think about, about the Hyperloop. For that, right. for that reason... It definitely still can come to fruition. Say there could be a track in 2040. Absolutely. As far as I know, but it's not going to be everywhere. And there's probably still going to be a lot of issues to work out from systems as they move and roll out over the next decades, if they ever roll out at all. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll include a couple articles that discuss like where we are at right now with, with Hyperloop. And it is, there are definitely people putting the money in and putting the brains into it. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, right now it is, it is very much that, that alpha level white paper. Right. Okay. So let's look now that we've kind of looked at those quote unquote future facing technologies Mm -hmm. let's look at what we could we really think might be happening in the next 20 years right right and for the u.s specifically is what you're thinking yeah so amtrak expansion um is obviously the big deal like we talked about up top amtrak is our big player in the u.s so in in biden's plan i think what you're going to see first and foremost is the california train um project or the california yep corridor project Mm -hmm. as well as some improvements to the northeast corridor project okay or the northeast corridor rather i think what we're going to see is california much like a like little china kind of being a place where we see implementation of this new technology Right. right they currently have a plan to go currently from la to san francisco on a very fast train and potentially from san diego up even further into california as well on this Mm -hmm. truly high speed rail line Right, right. The issue with the Northeast Corridor, like we see in Europe, is that it's still on that older infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So you're going to there's going to be a huge upfront investment to switch that over to a more high speed, you know, a more conventional high speed rail. Right. A very unsavory overhaul to get, you know, maybe 50 more miles per hour. That's and that's awesome. That's like very useful. But you basically have to do what China did and just, you know, or start from the bottom. You have to raise everything down and, and bring it back up, which is a lot of work. Right. And yeah, it's, it's kind of, you're kind of doing different calculus in your head, right? When you look at China, you're like, oh, we could have zero miles an hour or we could have 200 miles an hour. Right. Obviously we're going to hop to 200 miles an hour versus in the U S we're looking, we can have a hundred miles an hour, 150. Mm -hmm. What do we want to do? Right. And one of the, one of the last things is that in a mostly Republican held Senate. Um, we need local commitment for a lot of these projects, right? We need states to sign on. Mm. We need um, different political factions to to sign on. Otherwise, a national system is going to be dead in the water. Um, so I think that is my concern with the U.S. is that you're going to see maybe a national sign on and then these local state sign ons not being the case. Hmm. Yeah, that would be that'd be tough to institute a national rail system if the nation themselves aren't on board. Right. Yeah, so yep. we'll see. There's definitely a lot of talk of, you know, 40 different possible new train lines in Joe Biden's plan and you you paint the very realistic ones. Let's just, you know, further expand the one that's in California that's currently being built and the one that's basically entrenched and really good or uh, pretty good already in the <laughs> Northeast Corridor. One other place where the U.S. might actually push forward with trains is some of these private companies either coming to fruition with train lines or expanding. So we talked about Brightline. We'll get back to that in just a second. But there's some other companies that are thinking they might be the next Brightline of sorts. You have Texas Central. There's a coalition that wants to build a train from Dallas all the way down to the bottom of Texas in Houston. That could happen. There's potentially a private, potentially public-private group in the Pacific Northwestern United States, the Cascadia train system. They might have something that connects Spokane and Seattle and Portland that is high-ish speed, something like that, something a little more useful. And of course, you talked about this California train line, which is which is primarily uh, 
publicly owned, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But let's get to Brightline. Brightline actually might have a way to expand. Currently, it's already planning to expand. So we talked about it only having service from Miami up about 60 minutes to West Palm Beach. And Brightline actually plans to expand to Orlando. They want to hook up with the Disney Universe, Universal Studios, etc. They also have plans to expand past that further north to Tampa, Tampa Bay, which is also in Florida, just further extending their line. <laughs> also, switching over to the other side of the United States, Brightline is planning to put in a line from LA to Las Vegas, which in my mind, very similar approaches. Essentially, mm-hmm. Las Vegas and Orlando are these extreme vacation cities. You know, bring your family to Orlando, oh, yeah. come to Disney parks, whatnot. If you're old enough, instead bring your clan and get drunk in Las Vegas and lose a bunch of money. Right. So there's big attractions where people can just go to the city and stay in the city for a week, have a great time and train back to their city nearby. Yeah. As someone who has actually done the drive from LA to Las Vegas and back, uh, last year, it took about four hours to get there. And because of L.A. traffic, it took us almost eight hours to get back. Yikes. It was terrifying. Yeah. So that was one of those times where I'm like, oh, boy, we could really use a train right here. Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So my thought is this with Brightline is, you know, why not expand past L.A.? You know, you could keep going south to San Diego. That way you can have a train from San Diego to Las Vegas, or you can have other train systems connect into Las Vegas. I don't know if there's parts of, of Colorado that might make sense to go to Vegas mm-hmm. or Utah, et cetera. And then Definitely. on the Florida side, you can keep expanding. So we talked about having Tampa Bay and Orlando in the loop. Well, you know, 150 miles north of Orlando is Jacksonville, Florida. That's the capital. There's a big city there. And then there's maybe Gainesville and Tallahassee, which is a little bit more west of, of Jacksonville. Or go past Jacksonville, keep expanding north to Atlanta or Savannah or Charleston. Mm-hmm. Effectively, what you're doing is you're making this long corridor with Brightline. Brightline becomes the the northeast corridor of the south, the southeast corridor, the SEC, if you will. Yeah. And that could be pretty entrenched. And suddenly you have two corners of the United States connected into a pretty good rail system. Maybe, you know, much further past that, you would have some expansion more to Chicago through Louisiana, et cetera. But at least having a second corridor that's very legit, other than just the northeast corridor, would be useful for the United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And looking outside of the United States, we're kind of seeing more of the same. Like we mentioned, Tent is a project that's going through 2050, could easily stretch to 2060. Um, China is continuing to double down on their high speed, high speed rail as, as in like 200 to 220 mile an hour mm-hmm. or miles an hour. Um, they're laying thousands of kilometers of tracks every year. Um, China is also the only active maglev contract right now. A current maglev, um, which holds the land speed record, what they're now doing is looking to possibly connect a couple more of their cities with a maglev, a, a very fast, you know, passenger only train. Okay. Um, Japan, again, more of the same. They're making tiny improvements on and just extending the loving line. the benefits. Definitely. Yeah, just loving the benefits of their early investments. So that kind of finishes up our look towards tomorrow from a technological sense. It's always interesting to look from a societal impact sense. 
what do these expanding train systems or not expanding train systems get us? Right. Definitely. Right. right. So let's start at the pessimistic side of things in the U.S. Okay. <laughs> um, what if there's there's no cultural fit for this U.S.-based train system? Mm-hmm. Basically, the U.S. just doesn't have passengers that want to ride the train. As you mentioned earlier, the U.S. definitely has some cultural hurdles to overcome before we can see any sort of national commitment to a sustainable public mode of transport. And I honestly don't know that the U.S. is ready for it. We're not political pundits, John and I, so we're not going to try to pretend like we have a clue if Biden's plan is a good fit for the U.S. But let's just imagine it happens. The U.S. has a high-speed rail backbone. Mm-hmm. Now what? Like I said before, the thing with these large projects is that they're very high level. The goal is to move millions of people hundreds of miles every day. The project managers and the people writing these projects aren't really concerned with what happens once their passengers get to their primary destination. So, for example, New York to Chicago. Once I get to Chicago, I'm kind of outside of the purview of this high-speed mega project, right? Sure. However, I still, I'm probably not ending up at the train station, right? I probably need to get somewhere downtown in Chicago, or I need to go out to the suburbs, wherever I need to go. Mm -hmm. So I still need to get there somehow. I think there still needs to be, there still needs to be an emphasis on this local community buy-in. Right. Because... If I'm straight at the train station, I don't really care if it took me an, it takes me an extra hour to drive there. I can get wherever I want to go in the city. Right. Uh, we talked about this as the different levels of train systems. You might need a nationwide train system, but you might need a very good mass transit system in the city. Chicago is actually a good mm-hmm. example of having pretty good, you know, in the Chicago proper uh, elevated train system and, and bus system to get around. But you come right. to Minneapolis and ours is pretty mediocre. It's, it's decent. You can definitely take the buses. We have a light rail system that's pretty new, but it's pretty limited. You can't really get to the suburbs though. It's quite mm-hmm. limited in, in that extent. So you need these networks of trains or or mass transit at a local level in the city and and suburbs and at that nation level. And you're basically saying we don't really have the smaller levels to support the bigger Mm -hmm. level at this point. Uh, It's a concern of mine. Definitely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And just, I just want to plug Milwaukee as well, who has a great one mile long Potawatomi train car (laughs) that goes from the city to the casino. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's great for the great for the community at large. It sounds like it's basically uh, uh, Las Vegas to L.A. Same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Potawatomi Casino, Las Vegas. <laughs> Who knows? You know, you sit down at a slot machine. What's the difference? Um, Sadly true. <laughs> um, so so my guess is like always with something that's politicized, we're going to end up somewhere in the middle, like a median local buy in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to be tough. Right. We're going to have some bright shining stars where the local community decided that we want to do this. We're buying in. Um, and some people you're going to have that says we don't want any part of this public transit. And so that, that national line is going to suffer because the destination is not supporting it at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, if a government run thing doesn't need the demand, doesn't need to be profitable, Mm-hmm. then they can kind of take that risk. So that's a, a risk that is hard to take when you don't know if it's going to pay off right. ultimately. Right. And this, this like 30,000 foot view to local view is super important for these large construction companies. Mm-hmm. And this is actually some research that I looked into to see what are the social impacts of these large construction projects. Yeah. And the biggest thing is they've said, number one, cultural awareness, 
and number two, sustainable development. And what is really interesting is seeing how cultural awareness impacts the overall success of the project at the end. Hmm. Basically, what they found is that when these you know outside construction companies come into a local arena and try to basically not have any not have any thought as to what they're tearing down or the locals community anything like that they're if they have no regard for their traditions mm. that bad taste sticks in the community's mouth and so even when the construction is finished and the the company has moved on whatever project they have left in their wake so for example a rail system still kind of carries that taste of the crappy company that came in and ruined our local river because they didn't give a crap right it's it's still some right. some foreign entity that they don't they don't comply with and they don't want to accept as their own it's still an outsider right. of some sort huh yeah yeah conversely they found huge amounts of success and acceptance when companies come in and like i said are aware of the community they're coming into and number two are focused on sustainable development so being able to build their large-scale construction project without leaving just ruin in in the process well yeah makes sense yeah so i think thinking about that nation level and are people going to accept trains are they not going to happen whatnot i think it's also worth kind of taking this assumption that okay trains happen what happens when trains happen Mm -hmm. Looking into, you know, when a new hundred plus mile train comes to town, especially the United States, what, what are we to do? What's, how do, how do things change? And for that, we basically need to zoom in on this bright line project. We, we called it out as being, you know, the first new train service in basically a hundred years. Pretty crazy. Yep. And if we zoom in on it and figure out what happened in just the two years, you know, it's not the longest term look, but what happened from it or in those communities, we can kind of project to what trains might do to our community. So when we look at it, there's some, some negatives and some positives. So a negative is that the deaths were up a little bit. So, so in these Miami communities, Miami, Fort Lauderdale and West Palm beach, they were used to having some trains go through, but they were very slow. When okay. the Brightline trains came to town, they were very quick. So people would try and cross the tracks thinking it was the slow train coming and Jeez. it was the fast train and they got hit. It's, it's really too bad, but it's not a ton of deaths from this. A lot of people mm -hmm. that are anti-train from the region, they really try and pump up that this is, this is untenable. We can't stand for this and there's ways to mitigate this. Right. Another effect is both good and bad is that you can basically create a new city center by having a big train station in a new area. This happened in Miami. Mm -hmm. So in Miami, there was a bunch of businesses that said, oh, wow, there's gonna be a train that connects Fort Lauderdale to that area of Miami. Awesome. Well, mm -hmm. we're going to move into that area. We prefer commuter friendly train hubs. So we're going to build businesses and, and offices there. And, you know, as a result, there's a bunch of shops that come in and new apartment complexes and real estate values start going up. And this is actually one way that Brightline and these, these private train companies can make money. Uh, they can basically buy a bunch of parcels of land around their their station area and they, as they build the station, the, the cost of that land goes up and they can sell it for a profit. This is maybe a little sketchy. I don't really know all of the <laughs> ethics of that. I know, uh, true detective season two looked into this yes. really interestingly, yes. but a bad part of this increase in, in demand for an area of the city is that it 
it's not like nobody was living in that area of the city before. There were people that are being priced out of that area. There's gentrification that's happening and it's displacing current residents, which is really unfortunate. I don't know if that is, has to be necessary or if there's ways to build affordable housing in with these systems, but that's something to look for. Another similar trend is, is that secondary train stops. So like Fort Lauderdale in this case, they suddenly become a hub for businesses as well, as well, because businesses sometimes say, oh, we don't actually need to be in Miami, have offices there, live there. Instead of for only 30 minute train ride away, let's just build in Fort Lauderdale. That's good enough. That's mm-hmm. going to be a great hub for our business. So there's some secondary effects for those smaller cities. That's really cool. Another cool benefit is the walkability. Basically, the train hub becomes a walkability bright star, as I've talked about it, (laughs) where passengers, if they're going to the train and about to take it, they want to walk to or maybe take a bike or maybe take a bus to the train. They don't want to drive their car to the train station, hop on train and go away. They prefer to be close. So what that basically turns into is that a biker uh, that's that lives one mile away, he might go to the city and say, Hey, we need more bike lanes. I, I want to be able to bike there. And then the next guy who's another mile down the road from the train station, he's like, well, keep that bike lane coming my way. And slowly <laughs> you just have this, this spreading out concentric rings of people wanting to bike and walk into the train station that is actually happening in Miami right now. So that's pretty cool to see as well as a bright star effect is the idea that at the destination. So once you've taken your train and gotten off, people don't have a car, uh, much like you said, you, you need to have these uh, small local transit hubs that can take take you away from the high speed rail line to the local rail line. Well, mm-hmm. some part of that is just to walk at the local place. So you get off your high speed rail line and you want to walk around. You want to walk to entertainment or you want to walk to the businesses. In Miami, they installed a bunch of walking paths, uh, putting stickers on sidewalks and showing where people should walk to see a really cool side of Miami. That's something that is, is really That's awesome. cool to see rising out of this hub. The yeah, last point sure. I've got is the idea of bringing distant communities closer together. So think of, we talked about this China's high speed rail line from the near East coast. That's where a lot of the people are. It connects all the way to the far side of the Xinjiang province. That's an 11 hour high speed train ride. Wow. That's super long. It doesn't make any economic sense or demand sense. It loses money, but so why Mm -hmm. would they do it? Well, effectively it's a political tool to unite the nation. One China. China wants to be so unified behind their decisions, behind what they're doing, that they want to tie the nation together. It also doesn't hurt, doesn't help, that in the far west of China, this is actually the largest area for the minority ethnic group, the Uyghurs, the Uyghur minority. And China's big government is basically saying, we want to bring you into our nation and, and unify you into China, into our, our people in kind of a forceful way. They also are doing yep. that China government into Hong Kong. Hong Kong was of course. You know, somewhat independent from China. As soon as China started to get enough control over the Hong Kong area, they immediately put, a, put trains into Hong Kong and, mm-hmm. and unified that area. But connecting people doesn't always have to be devious. Europe's tent project they talk about trying to strengthen social cohesion between these countries. One Europe, it's basically the same idea. And in the United States, well, we could probably use a little bit more cohesion and connection. One United States, that's not really something that I've, I've heard people actually believing in lately, which is really too bad. One little qualifier is that 
maybe a train network connecting a bunch of U.S. cities is actually going to exacerbate the problem. It's not like cities are warring with each other. The biggest uh, disconnect probably in the United States is the urban-rural divide. Absolutely. And since a lot of these trains are having big stations in an urban area and then just, you know, cutting through some rural farmland or whatnot, Mm -hmm. it maybe doesn't have the same effect to bring the nation together. I'm not entirely sure, but this this unification and bringing communities together is something that we should definitely think more about when it comes to trains. It could be very advantageous. And that's I think we're we're going to I'm going to start with my takeaway from this episode yes please is that there needs to be like that buy-in at multiple different levels right it's not enough just to have the president and his cabinet saying we're gonna do a high-speed rail system Mm -hmm. it's not enough even for congress to say hey we're gonna sign on to this high-speed trails train system it really like comes all the way down to the local government because they need that boots on the ground support from their constituents they need someone like you mentioned out in the suburbs to say to vote for you know slightly increased taxes in order to have a new rail system that will connect them not only to their city which they are a suburb of Mm -hmm. but also get them connected to cities two states over or three states over or four states over without having to take a plane or without having to pack everyone up in a car Right, right, right. It takes a lot of different people to get on board because it's something that affects so many of us that we need to be behind it. It's very visible in our lives. So, you know, make your voice heard if you think that this actually would be a good idea for me or or if it's not a good idea, voice that too. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and I think like the big stuff, hopefully with Biden's high-speed rail plan will come. It is up to us to do that local level work. Sure, sure. That makes total, total sense. Now, for me, my takeaway is a little bit more interesting. As we've gone through trains and talking about how useful they are for commuting, say, one thing that stuck in the back of my mind was just this idea that even trains, as they improve and have better technology, they're still competing with like the digital world. We had that podcast Mm -hmm. where we talked about virtual meetings taking over and being more useful that's something that could absolutely be a threat. You you still will have people going on vacation a ton and wanting to visit friends. There's going into the office will still be a thing, but it's really interesting to see how these, these worlds are like colliding where, Oh, because zoom and virtualization of experiences is becoming really good. That's unfortunately going to hamper some of the rail numbers. Some people just don't need to go into the Miami office. They can just do a zoom from Fort Lauderdale and that'd be Mm -hmm. totally fine. So that's kind of a tricky thing. It reminds me of companies like Amazon, Google, et cetera. They all start uh, in kind of different corners, different niches, and they work out and they all are suddenly competing with each other. You know, tech brings the world together and suddenly there's overlapping. So it -hmm. is possible for Netflix to compete um, with Hulu, of course, but it's also possible for Zoom to compete with Brightline. That's a weird, (laughs) weird comparison. Yeah, but absolutely true. But absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I could see like, you know, 30 years down the road, like, yeah, you know, maglev or high speed rail never took off because zoom just outpaced it. Yeah. You know, we, we just got the goggles. We just got the VR goggles and we were all good. Why did I need to go across the country on a, you know, 200 mile an hour train when I can get there at the speed of light? Yeah. Insane. Insane. Well, that does it for today. I think that's everything we want to talk about with trains, some cool technology, Mm -hmm. but some very interesting 
societal implications as to like why we don't have it or what it could do for us. It could do to us, et cetera. Absolutely. So I'm also very excited to see what the audience response is. So please write to us, call us, message us, whatever, whether it's a correction, a question, a fun fact, just a bit of feedback. We'd love to hear it. You can also send us an email at weareheretomorrow at gmail.com. On social media, you can follow and tweet at us at WAHT Project on Twitter and see us on Instagram and Facebook at We Are Here Tomorrow Podcast. Want to hear more? We are everywhere where podcasts can be found. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, many others. If you stop by your favorite site, subscribe, please. And if you stop by Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. That helps the podcast a lot. On behalf of John and I, I want to thank you so much for listening this week and be sure to join us in two weeks for another episode. Peace out, everyone. Choo-choo. <laughs> I'm glad you did it because I was going to do it too. <laughs>